I don't know how many of you experience this, but you know there are some places in our world which have really good energy when you want to meditate. And this place is one of them. When I was just teaching a meditation retreat recently over in China Grove, I did mention to people that we have a hall over in Bodhinyana, the meditation hall there, and that's really good energy. By good energy, it's nothing you can really measure with a machine, but it's just people have much easier time getting peaceful and still there. It's as if the atmosphere is conducive to leading people into deep states of stillness. I feel this place is also developing that energy over all these years. It's a wonderful thing to experience, a place which is easy in which to meditate, while other places are a bit more difficult. So anyhow, that uh, this is the last talk of this basically teaching season, even though I'll be over in Bodhinyana Monastery for a while, teaching the retreatants and the monks and the couple of nuns over there as well. So it's it's always, um, I'm saying this, it's a joy to be able to teach. It's a joy, why? Because number one, I don't ever plan any talks. That's one of the fascinating things. You can start teaching, this is my life, my practice of meditating and understanding the Dhamma and teaching it to others. You just get so much joy out of how you can really serve and help others. In other words, sometimes it's not even the words. Sometimes just the softness of the heart and just some of the great ideas and insights which have come out of that. It's never teaching from a book. It's never teaching from a set of principles. It's something, again, deeper than that. Where do those principles or those books come from? And that's one of the things which happens when you get into a, uh, some deep meditation. You can understand these little truths. One of the things today is because it's the last talk for a while, it's one of the things today is just you know, the purpose. It's coming up to my birthday soon. And at the birthdays, I always tend to, I'm not sure, it may be just the way I've been conditioned, to think of what's been my meaning of my life all these years as a monk. I've been a monk 49 years now, and 40 of those years spent here in Perth. And all those years in Perth, you know, building up this Buddhist society of Western Australia, yeah, there's some difficulties and problems which you always have, but those difficulties and problems in your life, no matter what they are, those are some of the things which you value the most some of the difficulties make you see much, much deeper. Now one of the things which I always remember, just being a young monk in Thailand, if you're a monk in Thailand, then whatever you say, people say sadhu, 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 which means, you know, well done. And some of the things I said as a young monk were stupid. But still they'd say sadhu, 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 well done. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just what happens. And so it's wonderful to actually to first come to a place like Australia 
and people felt happy to criticize you. They'd actually let you know that you said something stupid. So much so that I remember there was one of our um, strong members, she lives over in Singapore, when she came to visit Perth, you know, I was quite a popular teacher, you know, at this time, you know, talking to many thousands of people. But she came into our library and looked for one of the oldest talks in our library. One of the first talks I ever gave here. And honestly, when I first started giving talks here, people would walk out and bored them. As a she listened to one of these talks and she came up to me and said, Ajahn Brahm, I just heard one of the talks you gave over 30 years ago. It was hopeless. I would have walked out. <laughs> and what she said was true. It's one of the first things which I learned about life, not just the holy life of religious life. You know, you don't judge yourself ever. Don't think that you can or you can't. Because sometimes you hit the spot, sometimes you don't. And over the years, you tend to be able to hit the spots where you can inspire people, move people, and make people's lives better. You can hit that spot more and more regularly. And it's not something you can train to do. It's something when you put aside all your training and you feel is that thing which these days, and it was a great thing that that uh, author, um, was it Brian Davidson, who used to, he invented the word emotional intelligence, and what a beautiful word that was. It's something which is not the intelligence you have in the world about passing exams and getting degrees. I mentioned this to someone even today the university, big university I went to at Cambridge, somebody had scrawled graffiti on the walls saying exams kill by degrees. And I thought what a beautiful statement that was. <laughs> In other words, we are confused and misplaced our wisdom from learning through the wisdom by feeling by seeing and understanding something much more important. And there's that emotional intelligence, which is what, you know, Buddhism really, I would say Buddhism thrives on. And it's emotional intelligence because sometimes it goes against some of the physical or university type intelligences. We do things slightly differently. Why? Because they work. The little things. I just mentioning earlier, because this happened just a few days ago, you know, the people with the cancers. You know, Solaris Cancer Care. I've known all those people, you know, who uh, look after that group. I did ask them today, ask them a couple of days ago, just to you know, confirm it. How many years have I been going there and talking to you people? It's about 34 years now. 34, 35 years. And they're not Buddhists. They're human beings who have got trouble with a cancer. They've known a relation who's passed away. And the cancer is just such a 
an important thing in people's lives if you have it or you know someone who has it. And so it's so important that people listen and they feel there is many other ways of looking at it and dealing with it, which are amazing sometimes. Oh, just all those stories, the one which comes up because it wakes people up when I'm giving talks. Sometimes if I give a talk in a common tone, people can fall asleep. So I like just being more dramatic when I give talks. So in this retreat which I was teaching in Sydney, there was one man there. As soon as we started the meditation retreat, he was breathing really loudly. <laughs> And so in the evening when people could ask questions, there were so many questions were the same. Ajahn Brahm, can you please ask people when they're meditating to breathe quietly? It was a stupid question, but you know, people were just upset, it was disturbing them. And then I had to announce that gentleman, he was like middle-aged, Caucasian, he had a big tumour in his sinuses. He couldn't breathe through his nose. He'd only come on the retreat as a last chance. His doctors had given up on him, given him a few months to live. He came there because nothing to lose, he's going to die. Maybe he could get something out of this meditation. And he did. That was a nice part of this, of the success stories. So he, last day of the retreat, I was in the car about to take off to go to the airport to come back here in Perth. He came running after me. I jump up, I jump up, stop, please. What happened? And he said he was meditating, the last meditation of the retreat, and he heard a popping sound, pop. And he could breathe through his nose for the first time in, I don't know, weeks or months. And it was not imagination. He could actually feel it. He could breathe. But it closed up after one minute. And then, you know, he asked me, what should I do next? And of course, anyone who's been on any one of my meditation retreats, or, you know, you ask me, what should I do next? Put aside next. What are you doing now? Sometimes that next business confuses people enormously. It's like, when is the best time to meditate and when is the worst time to meditate? You know the answer to that question? The best time to meditate, is it in the evening or in the morning when you get up? No, the best time to meditate is now. The worst time to meditate is later on. <laughs> it's nice and simple, but it's powerful. So anyway, that, you know, I told him, carry on. And I never, I actually honestly never expected him to survive. I thought he left it too late. But I was wrong again, because I saw him six months later. I was in another place in uh, Sydney giving a talk. And this guy came up and said, do you remember me? That's a rotten question to ask me. I see so many of you. I'm getting old now. Come on, you can't. My poor old brain has to be efficient. Who are you? 
Nada, <risa> no, no, digo. <risa> but, I, but the other thing is, I have to be honest. I'm an honest monk. If I don't know you, who are you in there? I've seen you before. And it's our president. <laughs> but nevertheless, I, I honest, I said, I don't know you. And I liked that encounter because he smiled and he said he was that gentleman who made all the noise in a meditation retreat. He said he just carried on meditating, many more popping sounds until the, the tumor just disappeared, shrank and vanished. Brilliant. Why not? You know, on that subject, I do remember at university, I was also a member of the rebellious Psychic Research Society. I was a physicist, but we also did experiments with ghosts and anything weird. And because of that, one of the experiments we did was in hypnotism. Hypnotism is an incredible part of science and medicine because you can access the mind, not the brain, but the mind. And one of the experiments we did, we, when one of the students was hypnotized, had a stick of wood, and the end of the wood was a four-inch nail. And they convinced the student this nail was red hot. And they touched him on the, the arm with the, with the, uh, with the, um, the nail on the end of a stick. He screamed in pain, as if it was a real red-hot nail. But then you saw his arm, and a blister came up. And that kind of shocked me. It was a room temperature, that nail. But because he thought, he believed under hypnosis that was red-hot, his mind created a blister. And of course, you know, that you, you've got a brain, you start thinking. So if the mind can create a blister, cannot a mind uncreate a tumor? Shrink it? That's the reason, the logic, you know, just the power of the mind. And of course, you know, in these retreats, basically got nothing to lose, these people are probably going to die. So you teach them how to do this. And they don't. They live much longer. And kind of that's part of the meaning of my life. How many people have you kept alive? But anyway, when I saw him, he said, yeah, the cancer's gone. And he said his wonderful words. He said, I can't really say thank you to you. It's just too big to say thank you. But he said, the way I'm going to say thank you is I'm going to spend the rest of my life, however many months, years I have, teaching other people how to do this. And I thought that was wonderful, thank you so much, that's one of the best gifts. So you can share these great methods with others. But that brings to my mind when people come up to me, when they say, do you remember me? And sometimes, I say, please don't do that to me, because I'll always answer no, most of the time. But sometimes, they come up and say this, and it's, it's beautiful why they, they come up and greet me. 
this was many, many, many years ago, that I got this invitation to give a speech at an educational conference. And I didn't know why. I looked at the people inviting me, I couldn't recognize any of their names. But it was a free breakfast and I was hungry, so I went anyway. <laughs> and when I went there, this lady, she was obviously one of the organizers, came up. You know, one thing at conferences, I'm very easy to recognize. I don't know why, it must be my smile. <laughs> See ya. No, of course, it's because bald head and brown robe. So she came up and said, do you recognize me? I said, no, and she laughed. She told me her story. She happened to be, this is quite a few years ago, the principal, I think, at Gosnell's secondary school, I think it was. And I gave a talk at her school, just about general, about Buddhism. And whatever I said really touched her deeply. She said that night when she went back home, she wrote her letter of resignation and resigned from her job as being the head teacher, the principal at this uh, school. And I said, why do you do that? He said, it's because you know, your uh, teachings now is the most important time. It's something she always wanted to, to do. You know, she was a very caring and sensitive teacher. And Gosnell's was not, not the best economic area of Perth. And she noticed many of the kids would go to school and then they wouldn't turn up again. They'd disappear off the radar. And so what she did, she wanted to find out why they weren't coming to school anymore. Not just one, but many of them. And the story which really impressed her was that story of the Emperor's Three Questions in Buddhism. Now the most important time, the one in front of you, the most important person in the world, and the only thing to do is to care. It's very simple. And she said that became her philosophy for the next stage of her life. She went to these very, very poor parts of Perth, the places where these kids would hang out, sell drugs, sell their bodies. These were young people who were homeless, destitute, no food, had been hurt somehow or other by society, traumatized, and they were just living, kind of, in a very bad lifestyle, and they were still young. They'd lost hope. So she went there, and when she saw these little kids, boys and girls, young prostitutes, when she went to see them, she always remembered they were right in front of her. They were the most important people in the world to her. And all she did, she didn't have any agenda, she just wanted to care and listen and feel and understand. And she did that for weeks, months, I'm not quite sure. And then she went to what they call here the Silver City over in East Perth, Education Department. Because she was a principal before, 
headmistress, that you know, she had her contacts and she put her proposal for an alternative way of education for those people who fell out of the, the normal way of teaching and offered these kids she'd met with respect. That was one of the most important things she gave them. Respect, not criticism, not sort of scolding, not sort of looking down on anybody. Asking, what do you need? When she said that, it reminded me the way I meditate. I asked my legs, what do you need? Do you need to move this way or that way? I never questioned that. When my legs say it needs to move up, I will move it up. That's called kindness. When I work with my body, my body works with me. It trusts me. And that's what's so important when forming these bonds so you can understand what's going on with your own body. And then she was using this technique, technique if you wish, this kind of wisdom, to know how to contact these people who'd been ostracized from society, which most people just walk past or call the police to arrest them and put them aside, hide them in a place where we don't need to see them anymore. But she would never do that. She wanted to listen. And over those days, weeks, months, she learned. She was a principal, highly educated. But of course, in those schools, you only learn, universities, you only learn some things. She just put aside what she had learned and listened. It's one of the sayings which I remember saying this to members of the British Army years ago when I was in England. It surprised me. These were members, British soldiers, fighting in Iraq who were Buddhist. And when I sort of listened to them, they made a lot of sense. And I always mentioned afterwards, never allow, I think the first time I said to them, never allow your learning to stand in the way of truth. These one-liners can be very special. You know, we've learned this can't be right. We've learned that this is wrong. We've learned, no, you can't do this. But I always like to suspend that learning, what I've been told, and to check it out with reality. The truth is reality. Learning is a lot of time from other people, what they've told you. So anyhow, so, you know, they, she listened to these kids. And a few of them, she managed to arrange a kind of program to get them back into the education system if they wanted to. And it was highly successful and that was the meaning of the conference. And I remember that I gave my talk, but there was a young boy, maybe 17, 18, 19, around that age, picked up from under one of the bridges, a drug dealer. And he said he'd now got a place at university, the coming semester. She had motivated him, basically healed him, got him back into where he could feel he could contribute to others, gave him meaning. And that's why they wanted me to go there. He gave a brilliant talk. And it can make like tears in your eyes. You know, when you find a kid, 
who would otherwise probably be in jail for life if he survived and got him sort of back into self-respect brilliant speech he was only about 18 or 19 so those are the sorts of things which give meaning to life you can take a position and make it just so much more beautiful take away some of the pain which people have inspire others and so after all these years I've been here it's amazing to see just how powerful this group of monks and nuns Venerable Ajita to next week, she's from Indonesia but I remember when she first wanted to become a bhikkhuni, it's tough especially her father was a very uh, strong powerful businessman and, but she always been very kind. When I used to stay over in Jakarta, you know, you'd vacate your room in your dad's house and let me stay there because I was free from mosquitoes and had a shower. I remember that, thank you for doing that. I remember all these other people who just sacrificed something so I could be comfortable. And that's a kind of something which is wonderful in this tradition. You don't ever think of yourself. How can I be able to serve and help somebody else? Those are the things you remember in life. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have ever been to Hong Kong. Hong Kong, it was such, even the apartments, I've never seen such small apartments as there are in Hong Kong. I remember many Westerners, they said that when they went to sleep at night, the room was never big enough. They had to open the window to stick their feet outside. Honestly. <laughs> and I st still remember this family, this, you know, to give me a place to stay at night so I could give a talk at other places. So their daughter uh, gave up her bedroom she slept on the couch and let me sleep in her bed because the only one which was big enough. I never forget kindnesses like that. When people just go that extra distance to look after you, to make sure you're comfortable. So I can give really as powerful talks as I possibly can. So all that sort of beauty and kindness which are in life, that's a real compassion. That's what you really learn what these meanings of kindness really is. And once you know what kindness is, of course then you can use it on your knees if they're sore. You can use it on your nose if it's blocked up with um, reaction to um, hay fever. You can use it to your uh, lungs if it's you know, suffering from the first stage of, of COVID. The kindness is a power which heals. And that kindness which heals of course you use that in your meditation. That's where you find out how powerful it can be. The kindness to be able to stop all these thoughts, see things in a different way, to empower the mind. So many people go to gyms, exercise, and make their bodies really strong and fit. But if your mind is not fit with your body, it's not going to be that helpful. Strong bodies is like a big tank, but out of control. 
But when the mind is very strong and powerful, that is where we can really do a huge amount for all other people. <laughs> Some of the... Do you think I'm a very strong, powerful body? <laughs> I'm old and fat. In the, old, in the early days, I was really thin and scrawny. That was pretty tough. Not in the body, but by my mind. That's actually just how you had this enormous strength. Not to lift weights, but to use wisdom to get out of trouble. <laughs> I always remember just these experiences which I had as a young man. A young monk, sorry. Even, I used to go and teach in the prison down in Bunbury. And so that was in the evening time. And in the afternoon, I had a free afternoon. It's happened many times. Free afternoon, I would go and meditate on Bunbury Beach. Bunbury Beach was very quiet. A lot of sand went on for almost ever. A beautiful ocean. I was, used to go down there in the afternoon, started meditating. I used to meditate for two hours. It was very quiet and peaceful and comfortable. And as I was meditating, our first story, it was a bit embarrassing, but here it comes. I was meditating there for a couple of hours. And then when I opened my eyes, I saw some people were now swimming in the ocean. But that didn't really concern me. What concerned me, I knew there was, I was just opening your eyes just after meditating. The beach was empty when I started. But then there was these two people sitting either side of me. When I looked to the person in the left, there was a young lady in a bikini. When I looked to the person in the right, another young woman in a bikini. I know there's some people who've been monks before, you know, if someone had taken a photograph of that, I'd have been in big trouble. <laughs> I was totally innocent. All that had happened, it was the last day of the year 12 exams. And the opposite side of the road was uh, Bunbury High School. And it was, it was quiet when I went to meditate there. But you know, what did kids do after they finished their exams? Get on their bathers, go and celebrate by the beach. And so these two, one was a blonde, I remember, one was a brunette, in a bikini. I was in my robes. They'd seen this bald-headed, brown-robed guy just sitting perfectly still. And they wondered, who the heck was this? So they actually sat next to me, waiting for me to come out of meditation to ask me all these questions. That was, that's a true explanation, that's what they said. And so that as soon as I came out, and I said, oh, who are you? And they told me, and they asked a few questions. I said, I think I have to go now, quick. <laughs> But of course you weren't embarrassed, you're trying to be kind as possible. But one of the other times was sitting almost on the same spot that somebody started throwing stones at me. I was just sitting there quietly. You heard a stone whistle past. And then another stone. And then another stone. And then they started shouting. Get off our beach, Rajneeshi. 
they thought I was, you know, one of the orange people, and they didn't like them, and they're throwing stones at me. Okay, I was an orange person, but, you know, not like a Rajneeshi. But anyway, so I realized that sooner or later one of those stones would hit, and that wouldn't be very good karma for them. So I had to do something. So I stood up, turned around, and walked towards them. I'm not going to be chased off a, a public beach. <laughs> Sometimes I'm stupid, but I'm always lucky. <laughs> so I walked towards them. And it's amazing, I was just you know, a, a thin monk at that time, and these were just kids, maybe 14 or 15, and they all ran away. It's amazing when you feel confident, other people feel afraid. So they ran away, except for one. So I went up to them and I started talking to him. I said, don't need to be afraid, I'm not going to call the police or anything, but it's not very good to throw stones at anybody, no matter what religion, if you like them or you don't like them. I'm a Buddhist monk, I don't harm anybody. So we had a nice conversation about Buddhism. And then all the other kids came back. So we had a lovely conversation. That's how to deal with, with potential uh, injury. <laughs> I kind of like those times when you should have been hit or something, or you could have run away, but no way I'm going to do that. What was the other time which I was, please tell me if I'm being stupid or not. Because this other time when I was visiting my mother in London, now, this is where I grew up, so I was going to give a talk at the Sri Lankan Wihara in Chiswick. Oh, no, maybe 45 minutes walk away. This is the area I grew up in, I knew this place. I was a bit stupid, I went down this road, Acton Lane, and there were some flats there, you know, for very sort of socially disadvantaged people. And as I was walking down the road, many of the kids were congregating at that spot, you know, for an evening, so they didn't know what they were going to do, but they were going to do something naughty, or sort of... Anyway, they saw me coming. Bald-headed, brown-robed monk. At least they were educated enough to know roughly who I was, because then they started chanting. They chanted, Buddha, 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 Buddha. They were trying to intimidate me, these rough guys. Buddha, Buddha, getting faster and faster, I got closer and closer. And I had a choice. I could turn around and run. But you know it's not very good running in robes. <laughs> this was, <laughs> this monk, Ajahn Juan told me this story. There was one monk, this was in Thailand many years ago, and he was a forest monk, and he went to, you know, he was wandering through the forests of Thailand. You always had to report into the nearest town, first of all, so they knew who you were, and uh, they would make food for you the following morning. And they said, look, this is a bad time to come to this town, there's a tiger around, and a really big tiger, already eaten you know, a couple of cows, and I think one of the children or something. So I said, don't go and stay in the forest, stay in the town here. 
And he said, no, I am not afraid of tigers. Show me where the tiger path is and that's where I'll stay the night. So the headman of the village said, well, you're very brave but very stupid. He said, no, no, my meditation is strong. I want to face this very dangerous tiger. So they took him to where the tiger path, you know, crossed one of the other paths in the jungle. He said, right, this is where I'm going to stay tonight. And he put up his mosquito net umbrella and he started meditating there. All the villagers, they left. They weren't going to face a tiger. And so this monk started sitting there. The forest is quite peaceful, and especially at night time. So he's meditating quite happily. And then he heard something coming towards him along the tiger trail. He was doing the old um, Thai meditation technique of chanting Buddha, Buddha, with the in-breath Buddha, with the out-breath Toh. Buddha, Buddha. And then, when this animal came closer, Buddha, 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 the chanting got faster. And when he opened his eyes, he saw it was a big tiger. Instead of going butto, butto, went tiger, 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 tiger. <laughs> and the next thing he noticed, the next thing he noticed, he was outside of his mosquito net tent, running with a tiger racing after him. I don't know if you realize, but it's against the rules for monks to run in these robes. And the reason is because they're only held on just by folds and by a loose belt. If you start to run in this, things fall off. <laughs> and he was running as fast as he could to try and get in the village before the tiger caught him. He was running really fast. First his outer row fell off, then his under row fell off, then his inner row fell off. And when he actually got into the village, all the villagers were really quite surprised. They didn't know who was running in because he had no clothes on at all. <laughs> and he was shouting, Tiger, 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 Tiger. <laughs> and that became known as a monk who was not afraid of tigers. <laughs> so anyhow, so these were the kids. I knew I couldn't run, otherwise they'd see another naked monk. It's okay, kind of being naked in Thailand, it's warm, but being naked in London, ooh. <laughs> So that's when instead of actually running, I said, no, I'm going to go right towards them. I'm not afraid. But I used something which I was a bit sort of uh, mm. uh, crazy, I think, to use. As I walked closer, I raised my hands. <laughs> In a kung fu pose. And I must tell everybody here, be honest, I've never practiced or studied Kung Fu at all, not even five minutes in my life. The only reason I saw that was because I used to watch, before I became a monk, the, a TV program called Kung Fu. So I went like that. And I carried on walking. 
พุทธพุทธพุทธพุทธ and this gang of young people they just parted and let me walk right through never hitting me at all was that stupid I don't know what it was but anyway I always remember that it was good fun whatever so the kindness what you learn there is the mind is incredibly strong and it will keep you safe no matter what happens this is one of the wonderful things to know that the safety physical safety the sense of friendship you're not attacking anybody those people on the Bunbury beach they you know they wouldn't hit me with any stones you teach that to other people how you can walk through these streets of Perth you can walk anywhere if you have a very kind strong mind and you become almost like invulnerable no one can harm you you don't have that violence in you and other people can't give any violence back it's weird so anyhow this is one of the reasons why uh, whatever you do here, some of the meanings you have here is understanding just how these things can protect you and give you peace and happiness and joy. So you never have to be afraid, never have to worry what other people think of you, but just have a, what the people think of you. Just, look how I'm dressed. I do wear a dress. That's what it looks like. That's what <laughs> okay, this story. I meant because we have Ajahn Sujato here at the moment. He'll be here tomorrow. And many, many years ago, I was in the news again, I think recently, the Commonwealth Games. I think Melbourne wanted to hold the Commonwealth Games. Melbourne held the Commonwealth Games a few years ago. And because I was well connected, it was also the Commonwealth Games had a, like a Commonwealth Day interreligious service. And so um, the Sydney Cathedral wanted to hold a Commonwealth Day interreligious service at their cathedral with Queen Elizabeth. You know who Queen Elizabeth is? She was the Queen of Australia, not just the Queen of England. She was our Queen as well, apparently. But anyway, so I got this invitation. Can you please come and help with the, um, with the ceremony? But it's also just with meeting Her Majesty the Queen afterwards in Kiribili House. But you know when they have these invitations, they have Ajahn Brahm and partner. <laughs> they always do that. So I thought, who could I invite? And Ajahn Sujata was in Sydney. So I gave him a call, do you want to come and meet the Queen? <laughs> and he took up the opportunity to go and meet her. We always have a bit of fun over there because I confess to this, that when we went over there, there was one, you know, it's, Queen Elizabeth was there and uh, many of the other old politicians were there as well. Uh, and there was this one guy just standing there, doing nothing. 
And so I'd say with Ajahn uh, Sujata, come on, let's talk to this fellow. There's no one's talking to him. And so we went up there, and he was going a bit bald. So I told him, so if you lose any more hair, you know, you'll have to become a monk like me and my friend. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and Ajahn Sujata asked, who was that? I said, that was Prince Edward. And he said, Sajja Sujata, okay, he said, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I have, and I just <laughs> They're a bit of fun and games. You're not really worried what other people think of you, but on that invitation, there was also an invitation for a state dinner in Parliament House in Canberra in front of Her Majesty the Queen. I can't eat anything at dinner. But that doesn't stop me from going. But there was a big problem. And a big problem, any invitation like that, dress code. <laughs> and the dress code, the first one was black tie. And that's been years since I've been to anything like this. So I asked friends, what is, it? is that all you have to wear, just a black tie? <laughs> <laughs> no shirt, no trousers. <laughs> I said, no, that means a black tie with a suit and stuff. Okay, we don't have that in monastery. So I thought I couldn't go. Second possibility, military uniform. No way. So I looked at the third, third uh, possibility for dress code. And it said, or long dress. <laughs> I thought, yes, I qualify. <laughs> and they stopped me when I came, went in. They said, are you supposed to be here? I said, yes, I have my invitation. This is my, my dress, long dress. I kind of like sort of breaking taboos and changing things. But anyway, that's what I went in as. Had a nice time there. But anyway, and you know what? They, I must admit, I think may, many of you may have heard the story before. They really did their research. I don't know who did this. Because most people had a three-course meal. And I can't eat a three-course meal. I can't eat one-course meal in the evening. So you know what they served me the first course? was, I think, some Australian cheddar without cheese. And the second course was some other type of cheese. And the third course was dark chocolate. I don't know where they got the information from, but I could eat. <laughs> anyway, that was memories of those old days. But nevertheless, I have a lot of fun. You never worry what other people think of you. In fact, Dressing like a monk in society is, is gorgeous, it's beautiful. What it does, it means that, you know, you can stand out. Stand out as a person people can come and talk to, they feel safe with. They can come and get any information from you about Buddhism. So often, you know, you've, that's why I like, if at all possible, going in public transport. Because in public transport, people come up to you and ask you questions about Buddhism. 
And that's wonderful. Even when you go traveling on the aircraft, there's so many people, you know, they, they know who you are. They come up to you and say, Ajahn Brahm, yeah, can I say something about meditation? Or can I ask them some questions about my life? Even I remember just going into Perth Airport, Singapore Airlines, in their lounge. I got to the, the front and they said, oh, Mr. Bamong said, yeah, you're allowed in, but would you mind if I ask you a few questions? I'm having trouble with my marriage. So I'm supposed to be just, you know, being looked after by the sick, but you know, you give as much <laughs> as you ever get. So they wanted some information about their, their marriage difficulties, so I gave as much good advice as I possibly can. And that's wonderful, you don't just take, you always give. And so sometimes you're seen, and you know, people know who you are, and you can be of service to them. You're like a, a, a fire officer. This is a fire somewhere, they know who to call, and you can douse the flames. Anyway, let's see the talk for this evening going all around and around in all sorts of different ways. But hopefully you enjoyed that. And hopefully there's much more to say in another time, another place. But I wish you all a very happy retreat period. The monks won't be here to give talks, but there's so many talks online. And if you really do need a boost of energy and power, Please, you can always come down to Bodhinyana Monastery or go up to Dhammasara Nuns Monastery and just to see the monks and nuns and there you'll be able to get a lot of good energy back. And hopefully that will be able to be, help you and be of service to you for such a long time. Range retreat, yes. But you think that I'm going to just be hanging around and resting and just drinking tea all day? We have about 29 monks I've got to train. And about 40 or 50 people on Jana Grove, on the range retreat. I don't know why I get myself into this, <laughs> but I do have a couple of weeks where I have my own personal retreat. Other than that, always here to serve any of you who wish to come up to Bodhinyana Monastery or Jana Grove. I wish you all a happy range retreat. Okay, now we do have time for questions. Dear Ajahn, do meditation insight automatically teach you empathy, loving, kind, compassionate, so you touch people's hearts with your loving kindness so they feel it? If not, why? It depends again what type of meditation, what type of insight you actually do. And if you do it properly, you do get some empathy. And it also you get uh, the action as well. It's one of the reasons why that we do need those ethics, the kindness, the goodness, not just by saying it, but actually doing it. And then that uh, strengthens one's meditation. And the meditation will strengthen things like compassion. It's one of the things which I always remember the Buddha saying, we teach us every time there is uh, an ordination ceremony, that, that when your meditation is empowered by virtue, it's really, really strong. Without the virtue, then the meditation just is, uh, is never really strong enough to break through to real kindness. And it's also true that you know a lot of people, they think they're kind, but they don't realize what kindness is.
Yeah, it's more than that. Anyway, from Georgia, that must be, oh, I think that's from the US. In the Emperor's Three Questions, the most important is to care for the one right in front of you. How would that work today where we have online connections and there's people in front? There's always just one person you're talking to at a time. And so you're kind to that person. And then the next person, and the next person. And sometimes you're by yourself. And that's where you're kind to yourself. So even though there's many times, there's a lot of people here today. But when Andrea was asking that question, I was just listening to you. So you always do one person at a time. Dear Ajahn Brahm, I am clinically diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. My disorder is visible to others as I fail to maintain eye contact with talking to people. Do you have any advice for me? I know one piece of advice, if it's social anxiety, if you can have one good friend and just get that one good friend uh, to be kind to you and you're kind to them, then sometimes from one it goes to two and two to three, three to four. Believe it or not, that I had social anxiety when I was young. I was a very shy young man, you know, even as a boy even, very, very shy. And you had to learn that sort of that confidence and not worry what other people think of you because when other people would you know, look at you or criticize you, you know, you would look at them and after a while you found out they were also afraid what I thought of them. This is when, um, there's a, it's a kind of a funny story, like a joke, but there's a lot of truth to it. When you're in your 20s or before your 20s, a teenager, you're very concerned what other people think of you. When you're in your 40s, you have self-confidence. In other words, you don't care what other people think of you. You can just go and do it anyway. And when you're in your 60s, you finally find out that people weren't thinking about you anyway. And a lot of time that's the case. You know, too many people do spend most of the time worrying how they come across. So you don't have to worry so much about how you're coming across. They're more considered about what you think of them rather than the other way around. But the other thing with anxiety, that uh, you know, tomorrow afternoon I'm rushing to fit in a blessing for this one woman. I've talked about her many times here. She was the one who had such strong anxiety that she couldn't get out of bed for days. And she was a student. And uh, psychologists, doctors could not help her. And then when she called uh, myself up because her, her father uh, lives over here in Perth, this is a strong supporter of our monastery. And her father asked her to call me, and, and that she was the one, I said, well, when you have anxiety, there's a counterpart to it in your body. It's not just a mental problem or an emotional problem. Where do you feel it in your body? And where she felt it in her body, I said, I want a description. She said, in her chest. I said, that's not good enough. She was the one I asked, Give me a call in three days later when you can describe exactly where you feel that. And she did. Three days later, she gave this really accurate description of where she felt it in her body. What does it feel like? Describe the feeling of pain or contraction, expansion, heat, whatever. I want a description of it. And she did that. Another three days, she gave a 
really good description about it. All I was doing, I was telling her, teaching her to be mindful of it, be aware of that feeling of anxiety. A lot of time it's unpleasant, we want to get rid of it, we don't really get to know it. So she got to know it in six days. And I said, next time you have any of these anxiety, feel it in your body, wherever it is. And get, it's usually in the chest, get your hand and just massage it with a lot of kindness, very deeply, as much as you possibly can. And so she did that. Three days later, when I called her, when you were massaging with kindness, what happened? She said the physical feeling disappeared. And I said, what about the emotional anxiety which caused that physical feeling? And that's when she paused and said, the emotional anxiety went as well. It was her light bulb moment. And she was out of bed within a few days. And she's got a, a clinic in Doubleview, an orthodontic clinic, she's just opened. So she asked if I could do a blessing there tomorrow, which I'm very happy to do. It actually works. Any emotional anxiety has a physical counterpart. It's very difficult to solve the problem on the emotional level. The physical counterpart, massage it with as much kindness as you possibly can, and you'll find the emotional part will disappear. That's how to overcome social anxiety. One way. Dear Ajahn, I want to become a monk, but in my actual situation I can't. My desire to become a monk make me don't appreciate my efforts as a lay Buddhist. So how can I appreciate more my life as a lay Buddhist? My goodness me, there's a huge amount you can do as a lay Buddhist. In uh, the teachings of the Buddha, there was this guy who was, you know, he couldn't become a monk because he had parents who were blind and he was their only support for them. But he became an incredibly wise and powerful man. He was a potter and he was just so virtuous, he would never dig the earth himself. You know, he would wait till like animals would dig out something from the earth. Or when the lay people, other like farmers were laying the dikes, you know, for their paddy fields, he would like take some of the, the earth which was uh, left over. He would be able to use that to make his pots. And he would never sell anything. He would just leave the pots on a bench. If anybody wants anything, they can take it, whichever they want. If they want to leave any rice or any beans for him and his family, his mum and dad, they could leave that. That's just, that's why I always remember that fellow. His name was, uh, yeah, Gatikara. Because sometimes when I want to raise funds for anything, you just don't like selling anything. Because selling is just basically far too worldly. That's why sometimes people complain to me. They go to Bodhinyana Monastery, want to buy a book. There's no books for sale over there. Yeah, come over here, you can get it from here. But not in Bodhinyana Monastery, nothing for sale. So because that's kind of just a tradition. It's not more than tradition, it's just something which is, doesn't feel right for monks. People want to go on a retreat. 
Honestly, you can go on a retreat totally for free. But please don't do that. Please make a donation towards it, but however much you can afford. But that's the way we run. And so that's what's possible as a lay person. Many people are lay person, you can live better than most monks and nuns, honestly, and do a lot of meditation. So you should appreciate your efforts as a lay Buddhist and do wonderful, wonderful things as a lay Buddhist. So uh, can you be virtuous as a lay Buddhist? Can you live a life which doesn't harm others or harm yourself? Can you be kind? Can you be peaceful? Can you be wise? Of course you can. There's a huge amount you can do. So anyway, oh, I never, that was from Bolivia, that question. So, wonderful. If you can't be a monk, be a wonderful lay person. Even better than many monks. Okay, questions from here. Remember this is the last chance to ask questions. After today the monks won't be here for a long time. Actually next week the nun here, Venerable Choki, she's a Tibetan. Uh, yes, we did ordain her as a bhikkhuni. So, she's a very nice, very wise lady. She's coming next week to give the meditation and talk on Friday, and we'll choke you. Know her really well. She works really hard. Any other questions? Going, going, go. <laughs> okay, so we'll finish off now. So thank you again for listening, and thank you again for your patience. Patipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami